Well, good morning. So let's go ahead and begin. Where's Bob? I like Bob to pray for us. You want to open the word praying? Father, we are so grateful for this morning to come under your word to anticipate learning from you to give us ears that we might the steps of feet to follow in the way you do this, we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. You might wonder why we're doing the book of Revelation. Well, a couple of semesters ago, this group did the Olivet Discourse. And if you're familiar with Matthew 24 and 25, that deals with Christ's outline of future things. We call that eschatology. And during that period, one of the things that we were going to do is the study that we're doing today, and we didn't have enough time to get to it, so we've been kind of putting it off, and I've been promising to do it, and this seemed to be a real good time to, to do it kind of as an interim study, so that's what we'll be doing today. So we're going to look at the book of Revelation next two weeks, and how many of you think I'll complete it in two weeks? <laughs> We get through two verses. Linda only. <laughs> well, look at Rev- Just see how this all goes. Yeah, really. <laughs> I consider the book of Revelation one of the most important books of the entire Bible. And the unfortunate thing is that it is one of the most neglected books as well. And I hope to give you a sense and a taste of why I think it is one of the most important books. And we'll spend most of our time this morning looking at the importance of the book. But just to give you a feel from what some writers and commentators have said about the book, John Walbred, who is considered an expert in this whole area of study, written several books on eschatology, says the following, even a casual reader of the book of Revelation is impressed By the way, there are not too many casual readers of the book of Revelation, (laughs) because very few people even attempt it, unfortunately. But even a casual reader of the book of Revelation is impressed with the tremendous scope of the prophecies, and that's one of the things I want to impress you with. Here is obviously an important book. And like I say, I think it's one of the most important of all the Bible. One intended by God to be a final word to man. And that certainly is what the book of Revelation is. Another professor and writer, S.L. Johnson, says the, it's called, he calls it the Hallelujah Chorus of the Redeemed. And I like that description because one of the greatest values in studying the book of Revelation is its lifting up of God and praise of Him and worship. In fact, this is one of the most worshipful books of the entire Bible. And for that alone, this book has tremendous value. A lot of people steer away from it, and hopefully after we take a look at it in these next couple, three weeks or so, it'll encourage you to read it even more so. But look for praise and worship and the elevating of God himself, the glorification of God in the book. So it's the hallelujah chorus of the redeemed. And by the way, a lot of pastors avoid it. Uh, Even here at Grace Church, Edwin only went through chapter 4, and then they went on to another series. And some of the richest part of the book are after chapter 3, actually. Not that the beginning is to be diminished, but... But there's a lot of value there. I taught it at a church for an entire group through the entire book. And I thought it was a very valuable time, including young people and children. So it's the Hallelujah Chorus of the Redeemed. And I would encourage it to be not only taught, but also read. How long did that study take? Oh, like 118 or so Sundays or so. Graham Scroggy, an older commentator, says the goal and consummation of all the Bible. That's the book of Revelation. So everything in the Bible is heading towards what is described in the book of Revelation. Therefore, without the book of Revelation, the Bible is what? Incomplete. Very good. So a very important book. So let's stress a little bit of the importance in the next few minutes here. And you may not have thought of this, 
But the first thing to note concerning its importance is everyone has an eschatology. In other words, everyone has a sense, in fact, even a yearning. That's one of the things I want to kind of emphasize. Everyone has a sense or even a concept of what may happen in the future. Not just Christians, not just you, not just conservatives, but everyone has an eschatology. Let me try to explain what I mean by that. First of all, uh, let me describe the eschatology of all. Even Dennis the Menace has an eschatology. (laughs) He says, I'm going to learn to fly when I grow up, so I won't be scared later when I become an angel. So he has a sense of the future or an eschatology. It's not a very good one, right? It's not a biblical one. And that's the case with most other people as well. Most people don't have a biblical eschatology, just like Dennis the Menace. Obviously, we don't become angels in the future. When we go to be with the Lord, we don't become angels. We remain human beings. But the point I'm making here is everyone has an eschatology, even a cartoon character, if you will. So, what is the eschatology of all? Well, I think inside of each one of us, because we are created in the image of God, even the unbeliever has a sense of eternal things, has a sense of God. In fact, one of the things we'll see in Romans chapter 1 is that all have received a revelation from God. And he's directing chapter 1, primarily describing the unbelieving heart, the unbelieving person. So everyone has a sense of God within them. Ecclesiastes says that we all have eternity built in. So everyone has a sense because all are created in the image of God. There is something inside of everyone that has a sense of what things may take place in the future. Now for most, it is a false, distorted and oftentimes almost the opposite of what the Bible teaches. So all are created in the image of God, all believe in an afterlife. What is the belief of the atheist concerning an afterlife? He has an eschatology, even the atheist. What is his sense? Well, no, we are plant food. That's the future of the atheists. Our bodies just break down into molecules that serve as food for other creatures down to uh, molecules. But the point is, all believe in an afterlife. In other words, there's something after I'm dead, after I'm gone, and the simplest would be the atheist, and obviously that is a false concept. All yearn for a solution to evil. All of us have an inward yearning. In fact, those of you who have children and grandchildren, I can see some of you have grandchildren, probably. (laughs) You can see it very visibly that children have a sense of justice, right? You give them one candy, you give one of them one candy and the other one two, what? What are you going to have? You're going to have a riot. (laughs) You have a rebellion in your house. Why? Because they have this sense. It's not fair. You gave him two and I only get one? Well, they have that sense of justice and a sense that there has to be a right, there has to be a wrong. And you don't have to teach them that. In fact, you have to kind of redirect it oftentimes because it is so strong that it's inward. Part of that is a yearning for a solution to evil. The world, the secular world, the unbelieving world has no solution to the issue of evil. It's only the Bible that gives us a true perspective on evil. The unbelieving heart has the idea that evil is just what is. In other words, it's always been here. It will always be. That's just the way things are. You can't change it. You can try and work around it, and every attempt to work around it is a failure. In fact, that's the history of humanity, is man failing to deal with evil and being entrapped by it and destroyed by it. It's only the Bible that gives us a solution to evil. We're in the middle of it, 
The study of the book of Revelation, the study of eschatology, tells us that there is a solution to evil. And we all yearn for that. All of us desire that justice be established sometime, someplace, somewhere. And the Bible makes it clear that evil will be not only dealt with, but that justice will be established. And one of the main teachings of the book of Revelation is God is dealing with evil in that book and bringing it to its end and consummation. That's future. That's biblical. So evil is bounded from a biblical perspective. It's not what is. It's not what just exists. But evil not only had a beginning and it's outside of God, but it's going to be brought to an end And what God is doing in history is he's working to bring evil to its end. And it's the book of Revelation that gives us the conclusion of evil. And all of us yearn for that. The unbeliever yearns for that. And it's expressed politically. It's expressed in culture. It's expressed in the minds and hearts of the unbeliever. All hope for a better world. Every single person hopes that things are better. They have a sense that things are not right. Evil overwhelms. And as a result of that, people take steps to try to do something about the world which we live in, sometimes politically. But the point I'm making, everyone has an eschatology. Everyone has a hope for a better world, right? All history shows a desire outside in terms of culture. All history demonstrates that desire for a utopia or a solution to evil or at least a better world. All history demonstrates that. And it all began, the rebellion, in terms of an organized rebellion against God or an alternative way of dealing with evil, it began with Babel, And all we have in history are examples of Babels, one after another, historically. Now, if we had time, we could develop this in more detail. But these are just expressions of that inward yearning of men collectively trying to create a better world. One example, the French Revolution. There was discontent with conditions in that culture at that time, and people rebelled. The new republic was to be a better world. So there's a rebellion, there's a revolution, the French Revolution. All of communism is a an attempt to create a different culture that is better, where everyone is equal. But under evil, everyone is equal at a very, very low state. Everyone is in poverty, therefore everyone is equal. But communism, that's an eschatological view, a political eschatological view that comes from man's inward yearning for a solution to evil and a better world. Nazi Germany is another example, in fact, a very vivid one. They had an eschatology. And, in fact, a friend of mine by the name of Mark Musser wrote a book, Nazi Oaks. I recommend it. It's a book on... The roots of the environmental movement today, the roots of the environmental movement today goes to Nazi Germany. And he has a lot of documentation in that, in that book. But here's a quote out of it to give you a sense of the Nazi eschatology. He says, Hitler believed that primitive Christianity was the first Jewish communistic cell. The Nazis, now the Nazis were against communism. But they had an alternative eschatology. And he goes on. The Nazis, therefore, propounded their own, what? Millennium. That's an eschatological view. That's a view of the future. The Nazis, therefore, propounded their own millennium, the thousand-year Reich, the Third Reich. Do you remember that? The Reich was propagated as a counterculture millenarianism directly opposed to the very originators of the millennial-slash-apocalyptic worldview of Jews and Christians. In other words, against the biblical view. A substitute, an alternative, 
But it has behind it this hope for a better world, a third Reich, a place where things would actually be better than what they were before. That's just an example of that inward yearning, expressing it in in a group of people that extends politically and affects an entire nation, and the hope was to establish it worldwide. We see it today in Islam. Does Islam have an eschatology? Very definitely. Its eschatology and its goal is for world dominance. That's what Islam is working for. Unfortunately, most of our political leaders today don't understand the goals and the work of Islam, particularly this present administration. They are looking for the return of a Messiah. They call him the Mahdi. They're awaiting the coming of the 12th Imam, who will be a messianic figure who will do what? Restore Restore a better society, an Islamic society that has certain characteristics. That's eschatology. They are working towards a worldwide caliphate. In other words, a dominant culture dominated by Islam that controls everything, and in their view, everything is best when it's done under the Quran. Therefore, this worldwide caliphate is based on Sharia law. That's the goal. That's what they're working for. Therefore, they don't mind dying for it, because they are adding to what Allah wants. And to die in the process of establishing this promises for them a glorious future. So they're highly motivated to establish an Islamic eschatology. Make sense? They're looking towards, they anticipate a counterfeit tribulation period. Just like the Bible describes a period in the future called a tribulation. Islam expects a final apocalypse. And when they implement jihad, it's one step closer to the apocalypse because after the apocalypse, the Mahdi returns. That's eschatology. That's the Islamic view. So it permeates cultures. It permeates worldviews. It permeates people's thinking because all of us have that inward yearning and it expresses itself. Therefore, it's important that you and I have an accurate eschatology, a real one. And that's what the book of Revelation does. That's what the study of eschatology does. Make sense? Politics today, in our culture, globalism today is an attempt to solve the issue of war. If we could only organize into a new Babel, under a global system, a one-world system, our world would be better. It's a yearning to have a better world. And there's a lot of movement in our culture politically towards a one-world system. This is very common worldwide, very common in the European culture and our culture as well. I've got a lot of quotes that I could back this up. Environmentalism, this is part of and eschatology. What are we trying to do? We're trying to redeem the earth. In other words, change it. In fact, what does Al Gore say? The fate of mankind as well as of religion. And notice all the religious connotation here. This is the environmental eschatology. The fate of mankind as well as of religion depends upon the emergence of a new faith. Not Christianity, but a secular faith. In the future, armed with such a faith, we might find it possible to re-sanctify the earth. In other words, cleanse it. Create a new environment where things are better. It's that inward yearning. You see that? Are you convinced yet that everyone has an eschatology? Well, this is what they're working towards, to re-sanctify the earth. Even the social gospel, and this is within liberal churches, within liberal Christianity. The social gospel is an attempt to have an impact on the culture such that what do we create? What does man create? A better culture. In other words, if we can help the poor, we're going to help their situation, but it's all man's efforts. 
social gospel. And I could give you some quotes on that that reflect an eschatology, but I don't want to spend too much time. So there's only two alternatives. You have no other alternative except the secular coming to the surface. What's the word? Um, Emerging. Emerging ideas. There's only two. So you have no alternative other than to study the book of Revelation. Either you have man's ideas where he, in his resources, makes whatever attempt that he can to create a new world. That's alternative number one. And that's all around us. That's everyone except those that have a biblical eschatology. Make sense? Or we can look to what does God reveal in terms of what is he doing in the world? What is this broad plan that is only revealed in Scripture that man only knows about it as a result of that revelation? What is that plan? And where is everything headed to accomplish that plan. Those are the only two alternatives. Either a false, a counterfeit eschatology, or the eschatology that we find in Scripture. God's plan. So eschatology is not a side issue. This is not just a study to be curious about future things. In fact, eschatology has a lot of purposes, none of which are to satisfy our curiosity about the future. God has been pleased to reveal himself because it serves a purpose in the life of the believer. And it's available to anyone that will avail themselves just by simply reading things like the book of Revelation. So, eschatology is not a side issue. It's not something that you just debate. It's not something that we conservatives hold to in order to maintain our dispensational viewpoint of the Bible. It's not a side issue. It's one of the most important doctrines of all of Scripture. That's why I see the book of Revelation as one of the most important books, because it serves that purpose to lay out how everything is going to end. And it satisfies that yearning that we all have in terms of knowing that God is going to ultimately bring justice. God is going to end evil. And we have a lot of detail as to how God's going to do that. Book of Revelation is one of the most explicit. So, the first reason this whole study is important is because everyone has an eschatology, except everyone, except those that have a biblical eschatology, have a counterfeit eschatology, a false sense. So it's good that we have a biblical sense, so that we not only have a biblical perspective, but we can help others as well. And you can use it as an evangelistic tool to reach people so that they have a true hope. And what is uh, the second coming? It's, what does Titus say? It's our, what? It's our blessed hope. We have a blessed eschatology. We have a blessed hope. So, everyone has an eschatology. The question is whether it is true, whether it is, it is real, or whether it is a counterfeit. It's the book of Revelation that gives us the biblical and obviously the authoritative, the inspired, the true eschatology. There's another reason the New Testament would be incomplete without the book of Revelation. And we can look at a lot of areas, but just from a doctrinal perspective, one of the things that we can talk about, theologically, the Bible would not be complete theologically. And you can go down all of the breakdowns of systematic theology, all of the areas of what are known as the major doctrines of Bible, that's systematic theology, and it usually starts with theology proper. Theology proper is the study of what? God. God. The study of the person of God himself, so it involves the study of the Trinity, and broadly, the study of Christ, the study of the Holy Spirit, the study of the Father, His plan, His decrees, His attributes. We would not have a complete picture of God without eschatology. We would not see that God is ultimately just, that God has an ultimate plan. We would not know what that plan is without what God has revealed. And the book of Revelation adds to theology proper. Even Christology, 
the life of Christ on earth and his death and even his resurrection is not the whole story. He was raised in order to what? Reign. Reign. Very good. To return and reign. If you want a little alliteration again. When he returns, he is going to establish. He's going to establish that eschatology. He is going to fulfill that plan. It is his plan. Jesus Christ. So all of the aspects relating to his return and his reigning and that culture, that society that is better, in fact, it's infinitely better than what we experience now, that thousand-year reign, the biblical eschatology, Jesus Christ is going to establish. So the New Testament would be incomplete with that description. It'd be incomplete without the book of Revelation. Anthropology, that's the study of what? Not fossilized man, but biblically, anthropology is a study of the nature of man, the destiny of man, man's condition, man's sinfulness, man's need for a savior, all those issues related to man, the issue of sin is part of anthropology. We are in the middle of world history. Are we always going to be like we are now? No. Heaven forbid. We're degenerating. Some of you more than others. Some of you more rapid than others. But we hope we have that same yearning that the unbeliever has. We yearn for something better, a better culture. Book of Revelation tells us that we're going to be transformed. We are going to rule with Christ in the future. We have an ultimate destiny. There is a heaven and there is a hell. So anthropology would not be complete without the book of Revelation and the concepts. What's soteriology? Salvation. The doctrine of salvation. Soteria is the Greek word for salvation. So this is the doctrine that deals with the whole issue of salvation. Is the salvation that we have now every all that we're going to get? No. We hope for a salvation of our present condition and our present body. We hope for a future salvation. Book of Revelation describes that. Part of that will be in the Millennial Kingdom, and then there's a period of time after the Millennial Kingdom when we will spend an eternal state in glorified bodies. Very much different from the bodies we exist in today. So soteriology describes how these things will come about. And also angelology. By the way, the book of Revelation gives us almost a complete angelology in itself. Lots of angels in the book of Revelation. You can learn all kinds of things about angels in the book of Revelation. A major theme of the book. Well, angels are part of the created realm, and we don't know how everything's going to turn out in terms of angels. The book of Revelation tells us. And there's two classes. It's going to tell us what the demonic angels, where they will end up, and it's going to tell us also concerning the others as well, the good angels. And just eschatology itself, that's a major category. New Testament would be incomplete without the book of Revelation, where it draws from all of the rest of the Bible and brings all of the eschatological teachings of the rest of Scripture and puts it in a logical, organized form and presents it to us in one whole, if you will. So eschatology obviously would not be complete with the book of Revelation. So the New Testament would not be complete without the study of the book of Revelation. So why do we neglect it? Too scary. Too scary. Well, it's scary, but not for the believer. It's a blessed hope. Don't neglect it. It gives us God's perspective, a third reason. It gives us that plan. It gives us what God is doing in the universe. It tells us why God created the universe in the first place to bring it to a point of glory that would glorify himself. There are competing views of reality. There's a worldly perspective, and one that is very common is that history is cyclic. Things occur, and then they reoccur, and then they reoccur, particularly in Eastern religion. There's a concept of, there's an eschatology of what? Reincarnation. That's very common, growing in popularity. 
But even those that are not religious think in terms of things just reoccurring. They're somewhat random. You see patterns that reoccur in history. That's not the biblical view. The biblical view is what? There is a beginning, there's a direction that things are heading, and there's an end. Very good, Mary Lee. This is the biblical perspective. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, etc. There was a beginning. Now, something happened in Genesis chapter 3 to disrupt a very good creation. There was no evil. Evil has a beginning. World history, I like to summarize it as God working in time to reverse the fall of man. And we're in the middle of it. It won't be complete until what is described in the book of Revelation. Where God will deal with evil, restore the creation to its very good condition. In fact, even better. If you can imagine that. So, this is world history. It has a plan. It has a purpose has a direction, it's linear, it's not cyclic. This is God's perspective. This is the biblical perspective. The book of Revelation is the end of it. This is how it's going to end. And it ends well for those that belong to the Creator, those that belong to God Himself. It ends badly, and this is why it's scary, because it ends badly for those that don't have a relationship. That's the biblical perspective. That's the simple message of the Bible. That's the gospel message. Everyone is lost apart from Jesus Christ. Book of Revelation makes it clear that everything that man tries is going to fail, and it's going to fail miserably, and it's going to end in tribulation of a magnitude that is unimaginable. And God intervenes and brings it to an end, and for those that have trusted in him, it's positive. And the only way is through Jesus Christ. Book of Revelation makes that clear. It's a gospel message. So it's God's perspective. It's, and I don't need to go over this because we've already looked at that when I looked at the first one there, it brings a resolution to evil. And it's only the Bible that does that. And we see that resolution in the book of Revelation where evil is dealt with once and for all. What is the last event of world history? Turn to Christ, behold, I... No, there's events after that because he establishes a thousand more years. No, no, I'm surprised. I thought every one of you would. The last event of world history. What's the end of uh, the millennial kingdom? Great white throne judgment. That is the end of evil. It's confined in the lake of fire. So everything is moving in that direction. There is a resolution to evil. Now, there's stages. Satan is bound for a thousand years. There's a purpose there. So evil is limited during that millennial kingdom. Demonic spirits are cast into the lake of fire. That's part of the resolution. You don't have the tormenting of demonic spirits. But all unbelievers and all of evil is confined to the lake of fire at the great white throne judgment. That's the end of world history. And then in chapter 21 and 22 of the book of Revelation, I think we have a description of the eternal state. We usually call that heaven. But all this is in the book of Revelation. It's our only hope. The only hope is Jesus Christ. The only hope. No other hope. Man exhausts all his attempts And it only ends in catastrophe. Jesus Christ is the only hope. And by the way, you could consider the book of Revelation a fifth gospel. The four gospels focus in on what aspect of the life of Christ, or the person of Christ, rather. I gave it away. (laughs) The earthly life of Christ, the humanity of Christ. Now, he remains human, but in a glorified body. But the four Gospels stress the weakness, the movement towards the death of Christ. And they stress the earthly ministry. Is that the total picture of the person of Christ? No, there's a glorified picture that the book of Revelation presents. So it's a fifth Gospel, you might say, in the sense that it presents a different picture of Jesus Christ. The resurrected, the ascended, 
the glorified Jesus Christ that is just as real, if not more real, than the earthly Jesus that walked the face of the earth. And there's a lot on Christology that you can learn from the book of Revelation. In fact, there are some things that are revealed that are revealed nowhere else concerning Jesus Christ. So if you don't read it, if you don't study it, you're missing out on Christology. You're missing out on the person of Jesus Christ. So I would consider it a fifth gospel. Does anyone know the most common description of Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation? Man. Hmm? Man. No. It's a lamb. Lamb. The lamb. That occurs about 28 times, I believe, if I count it, if I remember right. 28 times. In fact, no other description in the book of Revelation even comes close to the number of times. He's described as the Lamb in glorious display, but to remind us that this glorified Jesus Christ is the same Lamb that was put on the cross. It's the same Jesus that died for the sins of the world. It's the same Jesus that suffered and lived an earthly life and is now glorified. He's called the Lamb, very commonly in the book of Revelation, so that we never miss, so that we keep it together. This is one Jesus, the same Jesus, a different perspective of that same Jesus, the Lamb, the Lamb of God that was announced by John the Baptist at the very beginning. Okay, so it's a fifth gospel. There's no book, lastly here, why this is important, that displays the glory of God more so than the book of Revelation. In fact, that's the emphasis of the book, the glory of God. You have a glimpse of that, chapter 4. You have another glimpse, chapter 5. All of these worshipful passages just elevate and glorify God. And a lot of the attributes of God are on display in the book of Revelation, particularly those aspects of his nature that we tend to shy away from, like his holiness. Like his wrath. You see his wrath like nowhere else. And like his sovereignty and his justice. We yearn for justice, but we fear it, and rightfully so. But you also see the grace of God displayed in the book of Revelation. So the glory of God is on full display. Well, what time is it? Someday we'll get to an overview. Not today, though. So there's two attitudes that are common. A lot of people are fearful because they think the book is like a puzzle. You can't put it together. You can't understand it. You know, there's all these frogs. There's these beasts. There's these gnat. There's all this confusion. There's these symbols. How can you sort out all of these different metaphorical images? And some people just give up and say it's a puzzle. Well, I don't think the book of Revelation is that difficult. In fact, I would class it as a masterpiece. It is a masterpiece. If you like art, you ought to read the book of Revelation because it is one of the most artful pieces of literature that has ever been penned. And the reason for that is most of it John didn't write or he just recorded what God revealed to him and he records it in language that he is at a loss to try to find words for The book of Revelation is not difficult. It is more difficult to believe than it is to understand. Okay, so it's a masterpiece. In the time that we remain, we won't complete this. Let me go over to kind of help you, to give you a broader perspective so that you may be able to best read through it or study through it and understand it. Now, be careful with books that are out there because there are so many different ways of approaching the book of Revelation. And as a result, it kind of discourages people. But look for good ones, that, and there are some out there. I can re- recommend some. We'll do more of that next week. But let me go over some of the approaches to the book so that you'll be aware. You can spot them. And most of these contribute to that false eschatology. But I believe there is a biblical approach if you use sound hermeneutical principles, and that's what we will attempt to do. In fact, that's what we always attempt to do no matter where we're at in Scripture. And we want to do that and be consistent in our hermeneutic when we approach books like the book of Revelation as well. So let's take a look at these real quickly. And I like this quote, The book of Revelation isn't hard to understand, 
The reason people have a hard time with it is because it's hard to believe. We have a scale, a magnitude of events that are hard to comprehend. A third of humanity being destroyed in one judgment. That's hard to comprehend. That's billions of people all at once. So the book is not hard to understand. In fact, the Greek students, those that study Greek, which writings are the first ones for Greek students to to translate? Mark's a Greek student. Mark will tell you, but I'll let some of you try to answer that question. If you took Greek, which of all of the biblical writers do you start with? John. John. Very good. There's a Greek student there in the middle. Yeah, you start First John or even the Gospel. He writes somewhat simple. You can include the book of Revelation. Book of Revelation is not hard to translate. Major obstacle in the book of Revelation is just the vocabulary. But if you look up the vocabulary, it's pretty simple Greek, just like the rest of John's writings. The book of Revelation is not hard to understand. It's straightforward. It's clear. But it describes things that are so far removed from our experience and at a scale that it's hard to comprehend, that it's hard to believe. And that's the reason why commentators have a hard time with it and come up with all of these alternative ways of interpreting it. Well, here are the basic approaches. There's what's called the preterist. And I'll expand that And by the way, generally we go a little bit over in our class usually. I can't remember an occasion when we uh, stopped on time. Does anyone remember that? (laughs) All right, so. (laughs) Uh, But we'll get done in plenty of time to get to the service here. Number one, the preterist view. This is becoming, you might say, well, that sounds strange, but this is becoming more popular today. And in fact, one of the major theologians of our day has a commentary that takes this approach in interpreting not only the book of Revelation, but eschatology in general, where it has most of the prophecies fulfilled in the first century. I'll describe that in more detail. There's also, this is very, very common, the historicist view. And it came from well-meaning believers. It, It came during the Reformation by Bible-teaching believers, a historicist approach. The book of Revelation describes, in part at least, the church age. I'll describe that as well. This is also very common, where you take virtually everything in the book of Revelation as symbolic. There are symbols, but there's also a way to treat those symbols, and I think they violate hermeneutical principles in treating symbols, but the idealist is everything is symbol everything in the book is symbolic, so you need to find the meaning of these symbols, and no one agrees. I'll describe that a little bit more. Fourthly, there is the approach that we take, and we always take the right approach, right? <laughs> what? Is the futurist view where as most of what we have in the book of Revelation, particularly starting in chapter four, gives us a picture of the future, the futurist view. This is the only view that you can maintain a consistent hermeneutic in terms of how you interpret the rest of the Bible. And then when you come to the book of Revelation, you can be consistent in that same way that you interpret the book of Revelation and prophetic material. And what falls out of that is a futurist view. Most of the book is prophetic. So let's look at these individually. And we might have time to maybe look at one or two of these. Here's a summary of the preterist view. Most prophetic events taking place in the first century. Most prophetic events. Obviously, there's a future final judgment. Obviously, there's a future heaven and hell. But virtually everything takes place in the first century in terms of fulfillment. Now, this is very common. You might say, well, how do they, how do they put the second coming in the first century? Well, there are two forms. There's a full-blown preterist viewpoint that even puts the second coming in the first century. Now, in order to do that, what do you have to do with the second coming of Christ? You have to spiritualize it. In other words, take it non-literally. It's the only way. But this is exactly what they do. What they do is they put 70 A.D. as the coming of Christ in judgment and coming in spiritual form. 
And then after 70 AD, an establishment of the millennial kingdom. Well, they don't call it millennial, but they'll call it a kingdom. But it's a spiritual kingdom. And we're living in that kingdom now. But it all is fulfilled in the first century, or at least the beginnings of it. Now, that's the full bone. There's a moderate view, and that moderate view is some things, like the actual second coming, is still future as well. But most of the tribulation, or most of the book of Revelation, particularly the period of tribulation, all of that took place before 70 AD. So the preterist, that some of the people that believe this viewpoint, and I just give you this just so that you'll be aware that there's several books. An older book is Sweet's Commentary. And by the way, this is an excellent commentary. The only problem I have with it is this, this approach. Charles, this is another older writer. And here's one that'll surprise you. R.C. Sproul is an excellent theologian, but he's a moderate preterist when it comes to eschatology and when it comes to the interpretation of the book of Revelation. He put out a book, I can't remember, maybe 10 years ago. Any of you familiar with that book? It's a book on future things. I can't remember the title of it. But he's a sound theologian, an excellent exegete, except when it comes to eschatology. Unless you're interested in that view, I would not recommend that book that he writes. Virtually every other book I would recommend. So, and it's gaining in popularity today, particularly in reform circles, but it's also gaining popularity in other circles as well. A preterist approach. The strengths, they do good historical background work, particularly in the first century, but then they take that work, and I think it's distorted in their spiritualizing of the biblical text. It gives a good interpretation for the original readers. This is how the original readers should have viewed the book of Revelation, that it has some, and in fact, a lot of application to them, the people that it was written to. So those are some of the strengths. But the weaknesses is that you have to depart from a biblical hermeneutic. All right? Yes? I thought it wasn't written. Well, they put the writing of the book before 70 A.D., And they jump through a lot of hoops to defend that. In fact, that's one of the main things that they will do is they will put the writing of the book before 70 AD. But I think you are correct in that all of the evidence points to a writing around 95 AD. So they would see the persecution of Nero as described by the passages that deal with the tribulation. But I think it's set after 70 AD in terms of the writing of the book in the uh, persecution of Domitian. And we'll talk some more about that later. Okay. So that's the preterist view. Any other questions? We have time to do one more? Yeah. You guys are anxious? Good. The historicist view. Prophetic events taking place in history. Now this began in the Reformation period, as I mentioned. So they would see from the first century to the end of history, events that have taken place already, so some of them have already been fulfilled, but there's many of them that are still yet unfulfilled, but look for them as history unfolds. That's the the historicist viewpoint. And for example, uh, during the time of the Reformation, the book of Revelation describes this beast, this antichrist, this evil personage. The reformer says that's the papacy. Those are the popes that are described. So they would see the papacy as being described in these passages like Revelation chapter 13. And they would tie some of the other events, some of the judgments with events before the uh, period of the Reformation. And after the Reformation, they began to try to tie events to them. Now, obviously, the end didn't come shortly after the Reformation, So in time, the historicist has always been the ones that have tried to tie, for example, current leaders with the Antichrist or current events with things described in the book of Revelation. So Mussolini or Hitler, they were the Antichrist. The problem is they don't agree. They never agree. In fact, their books never agree with one another. So the historicist, some of the proponents... 
Now, Alford is an excellent commentator. He's an older commentator. I wouldn't recommend the book of Revelation. And I mentioned the Reformers, so the writings of the Reformers. This would be Luther. Now, Calvin wrote a commentary on every book of the Bible except the book of Revelation. Now, to their credit, they had their hands full with the doctrine of soteriology. They had to get that one reoriented. The Reformers didn't spend a lot of time on the doctrine of eschatology. So, to be fair to them... I think they had their hands full. And Calvin probably just ran out of time, and I don't think that he was deliberately going to neglect the book of Revelation. Had he come up with a commentary, it would have probably been from a historicist perspective. But he had his hands full trying to reorient not only soteriology, but a lot of other theological doctrines as well. Most post-millennialists, particularly today, are historicists as well. And I'll talk... A little bit about that some more. Some of the strengths, it makes the book somewhat prophetic. So there still are some prophetic passages, but I think it makes a serious mistake in trying to tie history. And I'll try to refute that as we look at an overview of the book later on. Maybe starting next week. No promises. Okay. It's probably a good place to stop. Any questions before we go? And we'll pick up here next week, and I'll give you a proper approach as well, and I'll give you some more introductory materials, and then eventually we'll look at an overview. In other words, I'll look at the whole book of Revelation at least in one and maybe part of another session. Our hope is a blessed hope. Who wants to close for You're a good prayer warrior. You want to do that, Mary Lee? Father, we thank you and we praise you that you have not left us two sins, trying to come up with our own, create your own story, that we don't have to wonder what purpose, we, what our goals should be under any of that, which you have laid out for us to follow. And so thank you for uh, this book. Thank you for Ray as he shows us how we can enter it and and really embrace the future that you have designed, or that you have, the future that you have intended from the foundation of the earth, that we can see our role in bringing glory to you. So we praise you, we thank you, we pray that we will be encouraged and strengthened as we uh, go through this study. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. See you next week.